Happy Yuri's Night, listeners, and welcome to the Exploration Medicine Podcast. My name is Dana Levin, and you're listening to a recording of the first human spaceflight, which took place 58 years ago today. The year 1961 fell in the middle of a tumultuous time for the world. Less than 20 years before, humanity had obtained weapons capable of destroying the entire human civilization. And now, two countries, the United States and the Soviet Union, were struggling to avoid using them in ways that would unquestionably devastate the Earth's biosphere. Both countries were developing powerful rocket systems capable of delivering their heavy nuclear bombs anywhere in the world. And both wanted ways to demonstrate their abilities without actually launching bombs that could trigger an all-out nuclear war. But even this horrifically high consequence period had a silver lining. During the Second World War, the Germans' Penamunde Research Center had shown the world the devastating wartime utility of rockets. But the science team there, led by Werner von Braun, had bigger dreams. In his own words, after the first V-2 rocket fell upon London in September of 1944, von Braun remarked to a colleague, quote, The rocket worked perfectly, except for landing on the wrong planet, end quote. After the Germans were defeated, the Penamunde research team was quickly and clandestinely sought after and captured by the Soviet and United States governments. The captured German scientists were put to work designing and building what would now be called ballistic missiles, but the country's desires to test these missiles and show off their ability to deliver nuclear weapons anywhere in the world within minutes opened an opportunity for the team. What if they could use space travel as a non-combat way to demonstrate the technology? In the 1950s, the U.S. government followed this advice and essentially gave a blank check to the members of two small college after-school clubs, one on the West Coast at the well-known Caltech Institute and the other at a little-known school on the East Coast in Boston called MIT. These clubs were experimenting with the equations and concepts of what we now call aerospace engineering, and in 1958, this informal project became merged with the National Advisory Council on Aeronautics to form a brand new agency we now call the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA. Von Braun was an integral part of this new agency, and NASA was born into a conflict with the Soviet Union over supremacy in space. 1961 fell roughly three years into this formalized international competition, and up to this time, the USSR had been winning. They'd launched the first orbital satellite, Sputnik 1, in October of 1957, and in November of that same year, they launched the first living creature into orbit, a stray husky mix from the streets of Moscow named Laika. The United States did not achieve orbital spacecraft until more than a year later, and the Russians by 1959 had even placed a space probe on the moon. The U.S. did not do that until 1964. However, in 1961, the main goal was still getting a human to survive the trip into space and return safely. Up to that point, only one spacecraft with living beings two dogs, a rabbit, 40 mice, two rats, and 15 flasks full of fruit flies had been recovered from orbit. But both the U.S. and the USSR were rapidly closing in on building a human-capable spacecraft, and both were racing to become first. Both NASA and the Soviet Space Agency had their own astronauts and were deeply engaged in learning the health effects of spaceflight, 
That's something we'll cover in future episodes. But both programs had settled on selecting military test pilots because of their experience with high acceleration forces and the capability of these pilots to maintain a cool head in the face of extreme situations. Ground tests and training included experiments with centrifuges, drop towers, simulators, task trainers, aircraft, and many other psychological and physiological tests. In the Soviet Union, 20 cosmonauts were selected, and ultimately Yuri Gagarin was selected as the primed pilot for the Vostok 1 spacecraft, with German Titov and Grigory Nelyabov as backups. The formal decision was made on April 8th, but the meeting was reenacted for cameras on April 10th to ensure that official footage of the event would exist. Rogarin was selected because of his excellent physical shape, and he was described by his doctors as, quote, modest, embarrasses when his humor gets a little too racy, high degree of intellectual development evident in Yuri, fantastic memory, distinguishes himself from his colleagues by his sharp and far-ranging sense of attention to his surroundings, a well-developed imagination, quick reactions, persevering, prepares himself painstakingly for his activities and training exercises, handles celestial mechanics and mathematical formula with ease as well as excels in higher mathematics, does not feel constrained when he has to defend his point of view if he considers himself right, appears that he understands life better than a lot of his friends." End quote. The spacecraft itself was built for a single occupant. It was, after all, only 2.3 meters, about 7 feet, in diameter. Gagarin himself was only 1.57 meters, about 5 foot 2, in height. Doctors were not sure if he would be able to perform any meaningful tasks while in orbit, so they designed the ship to fly autonomously or with control from the ground, and only an emergency code in a sealed envelope on board could be used to access the controls should Gagarin need them in an emergency. The Vostok 1 capsule was also designed to be launched into an orbit that would decay rapidly in less than 10 days, so that in case everything failed, physics would bring the cosmonaut back to Earth in a few days' time and complete the mission. On April 10th, Yuri Gagarin got a haircut. On April 11th, Yuri Gagarin and German Titov relaxed by listening to music, playing pool, and chatting about their childhoods. Reportedly, they also watched the movie White Son of the Desert, and around 10 p.m., both men were offered sleeping pills, but both declined. Soviet physicians had attached sensors to the cosmonauts to monitor their health and sleep over that night, but despite official reports to the contrary, biographers believe that neither Titov, Gagarin, nor the chief spacecraft designer, Sergei Korolev, slept. At 5.30 a.m. Moscow time, on the morning of April 12th, Gagarin and his backup, Titov, were woken, signed the door of their rooms in the Cosmonaut Hotel, and were given breakfast with a sip of champagne. After this, they were assisted into their spacesuits and, per tradition, sat down for a few seconds before being transported by bus to the launch pad. Gagarin was examined by doctors prior to the flight, and in her own words, one of them stated, quote, Gagarin looked more pale than usual. He was unsociable and quiet, which was not like him at all. He would answer by nodding or a short yes to all questions. Sometimes he would start humming some tunes. This was a different Gagarin. We geared him up and hugged, and I said, Yuri, everything will be fine. And he nodded back. End quote. 
somehow in all of this, Yuri Gagarin did not get a chance to urinate, and while traveling on the bus, needed to pee before entering the spacecraft. So he had the bus stop, stepped out of it, and urinated on the rear right tire of the vehicle. He then reboarded the bus and was transported to the Vostok 1 spacecraft. At around 7.10 local time, he was strapped into his seat and the communication system was turned on. The hatch was sealed about 40 minutes later, and he was isolated from the ground. To give some perspective on the program up to this point, the Soviet space launch success rate at this time is about 50%. 12 of 24 launches had ended in failure, and that's a word which here means often ending in catastrophic explosion. Korolev, the chief designer of Vostok 1, was so stressed by this that he began experiencing chest pains and had to be given a pill to calm him. Gagarin, however, was described as calm with his pulse recorded as 64 beats a minute, only 30 minutes prior to launch. At 6.07 local time, about 2.07 Eastern Daylight Time, which is coincidentally the same time this podcast was released, the main rocket engine and four external boosters ignited. Korolev radioed to the capsule, quote, Preliminary stage, intermediate, main, liftoff, we wish you a good flight, everything is all right. And Gagarin replied, Let's roll, or in Russian, I apologize for the pronunciation, Poyekail. And with those words, the era of human spaceflight began. Two minutes later, the main boosters had used up their fuel and dropped away. Five minutes after ignition, the core stage burned out, and the second stage ignited. By 6.17 local time, the second stage had shut down, separated, and Gagarin achieved orbit in the Vostok 1 spacecraft, becoming the first human to fly in space. He was traveling over 28,000 kilometers per hour, around 17,500 miles an hour, and circling the entire planet in less than an hour and a half. He reached a maximum altitude, apogee, of 327 kilometers, which is about 204 miles up. The Vostok 1 spacecraft had enough life support and provisions on board to last 10 days, in case the retro rocket system failed and he'd have to allow the orbit to decay naturally. But at 7.25 a.m., Moscow time, the automatic system oriented the spacecraft for a deorbit burn, and the liquid fuel rockets fired for 42 seconds. This slowed the spacecraft down enough to return to Earth, which was fortunate because, despite the planned orbit being one that would decay in less than 10 days, the achieved orbit would likely have lasted more than 20, and exceeded the life support capabilities of Vostok 1. In any case, Gagarin re-entered the atmosphere and experienced over 8 Gs as his capsule slowed down. Vostok 1 was designed without any landing gear, so at 7 kilometers above the surface, the hatch was blown off and Gagarin was ejected. He landed under his own parachute at around 8.05 local time, about 26 kilometers southwest of Engels, and about 280 kilometers away from the planned landing site near Baikonur Cosmodrome. His landing was witnessed by a farmer and daughter, and Gagarin later recalled, quote, when they saw me in my spacesuit and the parachute dragging alongside as I walked, they started to back away in fear. I told them, don't be afraid. I'm a Soviet citizen like you who has descended from space and I must find a telephone to call Moscow. End quote. Both Gagarin and the Vostok 1 spacecraft were recovered without incident. And although Gagarin was killed seven years later on March 27, 1968, while test piloting a MiG-15 jet fighter and training for his second space mission, his flight aboard Vostok 1 became an inspiration for all future spaceflights. 
and many of the actions he took prior to the flight, including getting a haircut, watching White Son of the Desert, signing the door, sipping champagne, and even peeing on the transport bus tire have become traditions for subsequent cosmonaut missions that are still observed today. And the date April 12th has been informally celebrated within the spaceflight community for years. In 2001, Yuri's Night was formally established as a kind of space community holiday and is celebrated every year by thousands across the world. Today, 58 years later, the journey started by the early space pioneers continues through the lunar missions, the Salyut space stations, Skylab, Mir, the space shuttle, the Tiangong stations, and our continuous occupation of the International Space Station for nearly 20 years. Building from there, we are about to embark on the most ambitious program of exploration ever undertaken by humanity, seeking to build stations around the moon and ultimately reach across 240 million miles to land on Mars. We stand as beneficiaries of the early pioneers like Yuri Gagarin, like Alan Shepard, like Valentina Tereshkova, and the rest of the original 20 cosmonauts and early NASA astronauts. Their legacy and sacrifices continue. So, happy Yuri's Night, fellow explorers. Celebrate by lighting a candle, launching a rocket, throwing a paper airplane, telling a friend, or, or simply raising a glass to the journey we started 58 years ago today, and to the ones yet to be taken. To echo the eponymous pioneer of Yuri's Night, Let's roll. Thank you for listening to the Exploration Medicine Podcast. Once again, my name is Dana Levin, and I want to send a special thanks to our production team, Jeremy Seeker, Emily Stratton, and our newest member, Sultana Pefley. A special thanks to Fenella Kennedy for inspiring the podcast itself. Music is written and recorded by David Keough. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. More information on each episode, including a comments board, is available on the website at explorationmedicine.com. And as always, feel free to reach out with questions, comments, corrections, thoughts, or anything else by emailing us at podcast at explorationmedicine.com. Thanks for listening, and see you soon.